So here we are in the middle of our season of overindulgence, and once more, John the Baptist bursts onto the scene to wreck the party atmosphere. Regular churchgoers know that he reappears every year about now to bring his grim tidings of no joy as precursor to the glad tidings of great joy on Christmas Eve. For those of you for whom Advent might be a newish kind of ritual, newish kind of tradition, it's a bit like taking our bitter medicine today in order to feel really good in about a week. John's style has been so parodied over the years that 21st century cynics find it hard to take him seriously. His language is arch, you brood of vipers. I like saying that. (laughs) You brood of vipers. Still, you know, we would say that no, no expert on communications would report that that is the best way to gather the attention of people you wish to address. The interesting thing to note, however, is that the people of his day went out into the desert to listen to him. And then he verbally beat them up. Still more came. And the people listened hard. They had to scrabble out beyond the town's borders and make their way into the wilderness where John held forth. And he attracted a whole lot of followers. They brought friends and everybody listened evidently. We have a problem listening hard today. It's a cultural phenomenon. We've talked about this quite a lot in the recent past. We're so overloaded with information and media and materialism and whatnot and hoo-ha that we barely hear our spouse or children or friends or lover when they're three feet away speaking directly to us. As we've all said, so very often, three feet away, talking to someone who's important to us. Yes, dear. It's an aspect of our cultural life that I have to consider as a preacher. People's desire and ability to listen to anything being said. Of course, you're thinking I ought to say something useful, I suppose which is fair enough. For our purposes today, let's, let's assume that the first century Jews expected something for John after traipsing out into no man's land, and they got an earful. He told them a thing or two about their priorities. He said they were turned backwards, as it were. And because they were turned backwards, they were in for some very tough times. They were headed in the wrong direction. They were headed over a cliff, as a matter of fact. He told them they should wake up and turn around. Repent is the word we use. But that's what the word from Greek actually means. Turn around. Take a new direction. And this time, get it right. Get it right. Now, most of us, most of the time, wouldn't put up with such talk. 
That is, unless we went to church during Advent and gave half a listen to John. But it's hard to take him seriously. And then his words don't have the same ring and cadence said from a marble pulpit amidst glittering mosaics on the corner of Park Avenue and 60th Street, New York City. It's sort of incongruous, isn't it? We lit a pink candle today, signifying joy. We have sharp musicians and a fancy building. We made our way into the opposite of the wilderness, right? And in coming, did you expect me to tell you that it was time to get it right, folks? That we're headed over a cliff and it might be a good thing to reconsider our direction, our priorities, our ethics, our values, our commitments. And that this is a matter of some urgency because God is about to make an appearance. Whatever else we might think about him, John is an agent of change. He thinks change ought to be made and the change can be made. And the change he believes in sets the stage for what God intends for the world. That's how the story is written. Change agent is a very popular concept in business and among entrepreneurs today. It's become an iconic component of leadership studies, hasn't it? Organizations of every kind, both for-profit and not-for-profit, seek change agent leaders in fast-evolving environments like we're currently experiencing. Today, the kind of change the so-called agent generally advances concerns organizational efficiencies and bottom-line profits. In this way, in our day, change agents will be judged largely in terms of economic results. Better organization equals better bottom line. If it doesn't, we can always get a different, a newer change agent. Well, clearly that's not the sort of change John was about. His focus was of a different order of magnitude altogether. John was interested in changing the human heart and then expanding outward into communal systems of justice and righteousness. Well, that's where I wound up this week. I was thinking about change. How does it really happen? How is it that we can actually change our direction for the better? I'm wondering, for instance, if the people who went out to hear John had a predilection for change, say, more so than we do. Because I'm thinking we're more likely to have a predilection for keeping things pretty much as they are. Unless we've already stepped over the edge of a cliff and find ourselves in freefall, then, well, then we'll try any number of things. You know, sometimes religion is used to protect ourselves from the kind of radical change John addresses. I hate to say that, but it's true. Sometimes religion is used to protect us from the change John addresses. The change of the human heart that allows us to expand our circle of care. We don't have to think too hard about this to prove my point. Think about the 
church's role in slavery, for instance, and then in segregation and in women's suffrage and today matters of sexual identity and orientation. It should not be lost to us that someone like Martin Luther King Jr. arose from out of the prophetic wing of the church, a la John the Baptist, to confront the majority church with its inverted gospel perversion concerning the dignity of all people. King spoke the language of John. And John spoke the same prophetic language in which he had been steeped that called for justice and for all persons to be treated fairly, equitably, and for those who had much to share with those who had little. We should have, you heard it today, we should have righteous integrity. We should care for the other. We should live sacrificially on behalf of the whole. In short, we should live righteous, loving lives, and a righteous society should be organized accordingly. That's the bottom line for John. That's his bottom line. And man, does that ever sound radical in today's culture. It sounds good and right to me. But then, what does that look like in any given life? Say, your life, for instance, your individual life or mine. What are the stakes for us? You know, over the years, I often have heard people say, after they have confronted biblical wisdom, well, it's all well and good that I should be for a just society, but what am I supposed to do? Me, I'm only just one lone person. Who am I in the grand scheme of things? What am I supposed to do? That's what I was thinking about this week. I was sort of roaming around my study, and I glanced at my bookshelves, and there was a book called About Alice by Calvin Trillin. It's a memoir that Calvin Trillin wrote about his wife, Alice. And that jogged a memory, I pulled it down. It's an especially loving portrait of a deeply humane and loving woman that is full of rich insight and in how a life is structured around the things that matter most. I recommend it to you if you've never opened it. It's a small volume about Alice. His observations are human scale, not monumental, and therefore readily accessible. He says simple things, really, as he speaks of her. At one point he writes, when it came to trying to decide which theories of child-rearing were highly beneficial and which were absolutely ruinous to the future of your children, a subject of some considerable discussion among some parents we knew, we agreed on a simple notion. Your children are either at the center of your life or they are not. The rest is commentary. Later he relates that 
Alice always said that parents had a huge influence on children when it came to what she called the big things. Essentially, she meant values. In a letter to our girls, she once included among the messages we'd been trying to send them, quote, to worry about being kind and generous to other people, to be honest with yourself and with others, to find meaning in the work you do, not to overvalue financial success. That's homely and poignant wisdom. No brood of viper talk for her children, but you know when I reread those words, I heard a translation of John's harangue in language meant to change the world. That's language meant to change the world. Because true to form, when confronted with the imperative to live righteous lives, just like us, the crowds asked, well, okay, so what are we supposed to do, John? And he said, well, in effect, he says, well, this is not complicated, people. If you have two coats and your neighbor has none, give him one. This is not rocket science, people, he says to them, you know. And whoever has food must share, he says. And then to the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. By the way, that would seem to suggest that it was regular practice to prescribe more than what was owed, right? And then he says to the soldiers, well, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages, which also suggests it was common practice for soldiers to extort money from people. In other words, stop the corruption, people. Right? That's what he was saying to them. Stop being corrupt. Stop participating in corruption. That's pretty homely wisdom. And right on the money for today. Is that not so? Tell me, wherever you work, when you're out and about in the world, are you not swamped in corruption? I mean, I don't mean to paint a completely bleak picture, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Pretty homely wisdom, and it sounds like Alice, doesn't it? Talking to her girls. Be kind and generous to other people. Be honest with yourself and with others. Tell the truth. Don't be overly impressed with financial success. How does that take hold in a life, though? I mean, how does someone change, evolve into a more righteous version of him or herself? How do we help one another listen to that message, really? Trillin continues, Although we never discussed it in these terms, I think Alice believed in the transformative power of pure, undiluted love. Alice volunteered at a camp for children with genetic disorders. One summer, she was especially drawn to Lauren, a magical child who was severely disabled. 
Ellis, in writing about it, said that Lauren had two genetic diseases, one which kept her from growing and one which kept her from digesting any food. She had to be fed through a tube at night, and she had so much difficulty walking that I drove her around in a golf cart. One day when we were playing Duck, Duck, Goose, I was sitting behind Lauren, and she asked me to hold her mail for her while she took her turn to be chased around the circle. I had time to see that on top of the pile was a note from her mom, and I did something truly awful. I decided to read the note. I simply had to know what this child's parents could have done to make her so spectacular, to make her the most optimistic, most enthusiastic, most hopeful human being I had ever encountered. My eyes fell on this sentence. If God had given us all of the children in the world to choose from, Lauren, we would only have chosen you. Trillin was sitting next to Alice at the time, and before Lauren got back to her place in the circle, Alice showed him the note and said, Quick, read this. It's the secret of life. I think Alice had it exactly right. Exactly right. and that by any other name, she had described the case for Christmas. You know the famous sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Out of love, for love, so that we might love, Christ came. And his cousin John was all about preparing for the arrival. Get ready, he said. Wake up to the facts of your lives. Time's a waste and take stock. Turn around. Time to get it right. Time to get it right. Time to get it right. Friends, how do we change? This is how we change. We do it one decision at a time. Oh my, we think, <laughs> how do we turn over a new leaf? How do I transform the content and character of my life that I know deep inside needs some work? How do we do it? One decision at a time. One little move in a different direction. One intentional act of kindness that leads to another, and then another, and so on. One choice today, and another tomorrow. To be conscious, aware, honest, truthful about yourself, and about the kind of life you seek to live for your sake, the sake of those you love, and the sake of the world. One very generous act of giving some of what we have away 
today. And before you know it, a community of care develops that honors the dignity of all persons. Friend, you know this, this homely wisdom is true, that making a decision today and another one tomorrow and then another one the day after that pretty soon you have accumulated a whole new life. That's how it works. Doesn't drop out of the sky. It isn't magic that we pray, oh God, make me different, and then have no intention to assume the responsibility and the agony of what it means to be different. One decision at a time. It's a beautiful thing because we know that that single decision can be blessed a thousandfold by the God who loves us the way Lauren's parents loved Lauren, cherished beyond measure. One decision at a time.